Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday, beginning week, and I want to do get this done um, the yard site of the week because when I was presented with the names there, I saw one I can immediately jump on. Especially in connection with uh, the sponsor today, because today's podcast being sponsored by uh, Nisim Shimon, who's a neighbor of mine. Actually, his house is uh, on the hill just above mine. And a good friend of mine I've known for many years. Uh, Nisim Shimon, uh, how should I say, is uh, tall, dark, handsome, eligible, with a good job. That's not a combination you hear anymore too often, so if you're interested, uh, let me know. You can contact me about that. And uh, appreciate the sponsorship. And listen to this. Here's what the, the funny part is. I said, when I saw whose yard set is, I said, it's a Balaturim. That one I know well, I like well to do. The Balaturim. It so happens that when Nisim contacted me, he was interested in some connection with a certain Jewish educator, was a Hushba guy in the 30s, most of us never heard of, from his grandfather's town in Cologne in Germany. There used to be a, an important Jewish community in Cologne before Hitler, and uh, it seems grandfather is from there, uh, Mr. Cohn, and uh, not so many people know too much about Cologne. The Balaturm is born in Cologne. Isn't that interesting? Now, he's born in the 1200s, which gives the idea of how old the Jewish community used to be over there. And people don't usually think of the Balaturim, who, as we'll see, spent a good part of his life in Spain and all that we wrote the tour, as being from the Rhineland, from Cologne, Germany. So I thought that's a very interesting coincidence, the way the good Lord organizes things. Uh, before I proceed, I am planning to start this coming Sunday a six-part series, a uh, lecture series on... Um, which I call Meigra, Rama, Liberia, Mikta, Jews, and Lithuanians, Glory, Horror, Glory, Horror and Revisionist History, uh, which I'll be delivering. Uh, if, they're, if you're interested in that, you have to uh, email me. Uh, it's better to email me at binujhistory, B-I-N-U-J-History at uh, gmail.com for uh, how you can access it. But without any further ado, let me say that uh, I've always been interested in Balaturim. And some of you, when you hear the word Balaturim, are immediately going to think of the Chumash and Gematrias. I get it. And there are a lot of people out there that don't realize, I mean, it's funny, that the Balaturim is the guy who wrote the tour, the Tor Shulchanach, right? The Tor Shulchanach. And it's funny, because uh, what's more important, the Tor Shulchanach or Balaturim? Now, it may be, I don't know who I'm speaking to, I know I have a wide, variegated crowd. Not everybody's exactly familiar with the tour. That's why I wanted to jump on this today. Because I'm a big fan of the tour. Uh, our hero is, is the Yaakov Ben Asher, who is, means the son of the Rush. I think you've heard of the Rush, probably. One of the biggest were shown him, biggest Ashkenaz were shown him. He lived in the 1200s. Uh, here we're dealing with a very old and distinguished Ashkenazic family. German Jews who are descended from the Bali Tosos. Look, when the Rush was born, the Tosos were still around. Because the Rush, who lived in the 1200s, was a student, among others, of the Marm Rottenberg, who I spoke about a couple months ago. He was the one imprisoned by Rudolf of Habsburg. And the Rush was probably his main student. And the Marm Rottenberg is generally considered the last of the Bali Tosos. So, uh, here we have someone, Torah Gedula Mokham Echad. And the Rush himself, therefore, came from a Hasha family. The father of the Rush, Rechil, was a big Talmud Chacham and all that sort of thing. Also, Hasidim, very pious, very from. And uh, 
into old Ashkenazi mysticism, which is not identical with Kabbalah. And they had a lot of dreams and things like this. And I just have to tell you the story. If you want to know the history of Rush, there's a number of sources. One of them, not the only one, one of them is from a son of the Rush. I'll talk about it a little bit later, maybe. He would have been a Rush, which would be the brother of our hero. I think the Rush had five or six boys, maybe something like that. Maybe even seven or eight, and some died. He left like five sons. And, um, as I recall, and the Rush's parents, his father was this real from guy, and he died. His mother got a dream from the father after he died. Leave the town tonight and take the kids. There's going to be a pogrom tomorrow. That's what it says in the Savob, in the last will and testament of Yehudim and Arash, which is always appended to the Sefer Shals and Shubas Yehudim and Arash, Zichon Yehuda, which is one of the classic books of Shals and Shubas. And it's been famous as an ethical will. It's full of all kind of muster to tell his children after he dies. And it was in, I read it, oh, so many years ago, because the Jewish Publication Society, way back 100 years ago, published what they called Jewish Ethical Will, to translate in English. And, um, I, like, like I said, I don't know how old I was, very young, I read the Jewish Ethical Will, and one of them was Yehuda Ben-Arush. And one of the things he talked about is his family history, the way he understands it. And one of the things he says, his mother got this dream, there's going to be a grum, take the kids and run. And she did. It's like the wife of Lot. After she saved the kids, I think I'm remembering this story right. You look it up yourself and tell me if I'm wrong. I believe I've got it right. After she saved the kid, she went back to get some money, like Yaakov did to get the Pacham Katanim, and she got killed. You know, by the, by the pogrom. Isn't that something? It's a very uh, dramatic family. And uh, that would be the mother of the rush, I think. Yeah. And it doesn't surprise me that... Uh, just like in my generation, you know, after the Holocaust, everybody had a fair large number of children, partly because, you know, you cho- having children is a personal choice, and a lot of things are involved in it. It's a highly personal business. But broadly speaking, it's after the Holocaust, people want to have uh, replenished, you know, something like that. Each one in his own way. The chassin is very pronounced. And I remember he said that the, this lady who died, her children and grandchildren, they had so many kids, that there was a chassan in the family of the Rush, 500 guests came, all relatives, all very close cousins. You know what I mean? I've heard these things sometimes in America, in Williamsburg, or in Israel, in B'nai Brock, and so do you. I think Zev Radin in Florida told me not long ago about some kind of family get-together where it was something along those lines where they had hundreds of Eneklach, and as they say today, this is the, the, the triumph over Hitler, well, it's an old story. It goes back to the 13th century. Um, which is kind of interesting. Anyway, so the Rush was this big rabbi, and his rabbi, Demar Rottenberg, was the one who was put in jail by the Emperor Rudolf of Habsburg, the Holy Roman Emperor. And the Rush was the student that stayed behind, and he was the godel after Demar Rottenberg, and he raised the money to ransom him, and Demar Rottenberg wouldn't let him be ransom, himself be ransomed. And I forgot the emperor or his son, maybe it was Albert, wanted the money, and things got hot for the rush. And he was never arrested, but he wasn't stupid. He's not waiting around to get arrested. And uh, he f- ran away from Germany. Wasn't push it, but he got out of Germany. And the story that they tell in the will is that after he left, the emperor said, Come back, I'll give you a guarantee, nothing will happen to you. I'll send you 50 knights, you know, Christian knights, <clears throat> to guarantee your safety, all the rest of it. And uh, let's put it this way. So Russell, I guess, yeah, I'll be there in five minutes. Don't, don't wait for me, you know. You can trust the word of the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, especially Habsburg in the, in the 1200s. So he said, the heck with Germany, I'm out of there. And the rush then began a journey, which his Rebbe would have taken. And he went down to the south of France, and he went to the Riviera area, and he, and he, and he traveled from there eventually to Spain. And he took all of his kids with us, with him. So our hero, the son of the rush, Yaakov ben Usher, experienced this. Now, our hero, Yaakov ben Usher, was born around 1270, and he lived to be about 
75. So he's born 1269, dies 1343. He's about 74, 75 years old. And the Rush also was about 75, something like that when he died. Which is fairly long life. In those days especially. See, he was part of this adventure. If he was born around 1270, and the story I'm talking about happened around the year 1300, 1305. So, here's a guy. I, I always like to be very realistic about this. Here's a guy who uh, lived in the shadow of his father. I don't mean anything wrong by that, but he was born in Cologne. His father was there. The Rush was rich. I'll say it again. The Rush was a rich man because he was a successful moneylender. Okay? Malba Baribis Lagayim, which was allowed. But there's a high-risk business. You know, you lend too much money to too high official. The official will get you bumped off, so you won't have to pay. Happened a lot of times. A lot of times. So the Rush had to play his cards very carefully. So the son of the Rush, our hero, grew up and probably got married and all the rest of it, living in the father's shadow. So let's say, for example, your father was a big rub, and you're the son of the rub. Your father's a big Rosh Hashiva. You're the son of Rosh Hashiva. You're good too, but you're not the Rosh Hashiva. No? That's a certain identity. It can be bad. It can be good. In the case of the Rosh Hashiva, it was not bad. They happened to be there. Father was a god of the door. They were not slouches either of the kids. You know, they just weren't the father. So, and the Rush and all these guys were very from, very Hasidic in the old sense of the word. And so the kids were raised that way. So everything's really shame shamayim. Listen, we're not talking about a regular family over here. Talking about the Rush, the elite of the Ashkenazi frumies, the elite. I said they all were generally very from. So that means that our hero was around 35 years old when they fled, which is interesting. He wasn't a kid. I'm sure he was married, probably had kids of his own. By the way, if you do the numbers, the rush was something like 19 or 20 years old when his son was born. So he's a classic Ashkenaz Jew. You get married like 14, 15. That means you're already a father by 15, 16, 17, right? And so the rush was not much older than, uh, than the tour, which, again, is just an interesting thing. In other words, my father's Rosh Hashiva, I'm 20, and he's, you know, 40. <laughs> not, not that big of a difference, correct? Right? He's already a renowned person. I'm 30, he's 50. It's, it's not that big of a difference. So, he came to Spain in a very famous incident. When the Rush showed up in Spain, and I'll say it again, he was not poor. It's an important part of the story. So, so if you know the map, if you look at the Mediterranean, you go across um, across the Riviera, you know, Marseille and Nice and all that, and heading westward, and you get to the Spanish border. You do not have to cross the mountains. You just go according to the sea, you know, by the seashore. And so when you, it's an easy way to get into Spain. At that time, Spain was divided into two kingdoms, as I said, the Christian part, uh, the kingdom of Castile and the kingdom of Aragon. There was a small other kingdom, but it doesn't matter. And uh, the big rabbi, let me put it this way. I've mentioned before when I talked about the Reblush, and I was, I'm sure I must have mentioned that the two kingdoms in Spain, Christian kingdoms, uh, had a lot of Jews, but Aragon was the Iker Malcolm Torah. Keep that in mind. Uh, for those of you who don't remember or know what I'm talking about, it's not a, I'm not giving an exam over here. There was a place called Spain. It used to be run, overrun by the Arabs, 90-some percent of it. But then the Christians started to get it back. I'm simplifying. And by the time you get to the middle of the 1200s, the Christians retook 90, 95%. Right? There's only a little piece called Granada left that the Muslims still had. The rest of it was under the Christians. See, if you look at the Spanish Peninsula, you'd see three countries. Portugal on the left, Castile in the middle, and Aragon on the right. Aragon be the part facing um, Israel. Today they call it Catalonia. Catalonia. It's a different language. You know, it's related to Spanish, obviously. It's a different culture, a different language, and that's what it was. So Catalonia, or Aragon, was the place that had the famous rabbis that you've heard of, and the Iker Mokham Torah, uh, the Iker Rishonim. Who's in Aragon? Rabbeinu Yonah, uh, uh, what do you call it, Ramban, uh, Rajba, Ritva, Ran, Rivash, Ra'ah, you know, all those names. It's like saying in America, the Iker Mokham Torah is the, is the East Coast. It's not a put-down on the rest of the country. It's just a fact. You know, nothing wrong with that. 
Now, um, the reason I'm saying is for the following reason. So here comes this big Ashkenazi rabbi, big Ashkenazi rabbi. So I'll just use simple terms. Let's say Rabbi Aaron Cutler now is showing up, somebody like that. And he came to one of the first big communities that you encounter when you cross the border. First is Girona, and then Barcelona. Barcelona is the Rajba. So when the Rosh, don't get confused, and his family, and his entourage, traveled to Spain, so uh, just like a Baron Cutler didn't come by himself, he came with his family. So the Rosh came to Barcelona, and he was, the Rosh, let's put it this way, five minutes of talking with him, he saw who he's dealing with, you know. Uh, that'd be just an interesting scene, right? You can make a nice movie, or you'd be a fly on the wall. The meaning of the Rosh and the Rosh, like a Shiva boy's dream, you know, to, to watch that. And you know, he said, I got a kasha. Well, I got a terrace. I got a kasha in your terrace. <laughs> like that. And Darash immediately saw who he's dealing with. And he said like this, I'll get you a job. I have a lot of pull here in the two kingdoms. Don't be in Aragon because there's plenty of yeshivas and stuff like that already there. Go to Chicago. Go to St. Louis. Go to New Orleans. You know what I mean? No, go elsewhere. And be a rabbi starting Shiva there, because there is one. That's a good idea. There's nothing wrong with what I say. Some of you may possibly remember from the Gemara, Rav and Shmuel. Rav came instead of Yeshiva and Surah, because in the, Shmuel was already in the, in the older part, in their day. You know what I mean? Was, why do I need two, two, another Yeshiva in Baltimore, another Yeshiva in Lakewood? What do you need that for? When there's zero Yeshivas in uh, Seattle or, you know, uh, New Orleans or whatever like that. Make a place, make Yeshiva, make a center where there is none. And that's what happened. He said, I know rich community Toledo, Toledo, which was the capital of, of, of Castile. And I'll get you elected to be the rov there, and that's what happened. So from then on, in the early 1300s, the Rosh spent the rest of his life, even though he's Ashkenaz, he spoke Yiddish, uh, as the uh, rov of Bezdin, the chief dayan, and Rashiva, and Rosh Hashiva, I say, and Toledo and smack in the belly button of Spain. Uh, Toledo was the capital of the other kingdom of Castile. I was in Toledo. All these places in, in, in Spain are beautiful. I mean, if you go there, it's such a nice climate, such a nice everything. It's, a, it, it's amazing. The uh, very pretty country. Very pretty. Now, um, that's where the rush was. And he set up, as they say before, he turned into Malcolm Torah, as we would say. He was a posig there. He became the big guy in Castile. And so you had, at that time, some heavy hitters. The Raj was the Mr. Uh, Godel in Aragon, and the Rush is Mr. Godel in uh, Castile. This is a time in Spain, this is the time in Spain, when the Jewish communities, what they call the Alhamas, from the Arabic term, had maximum uh, autonomy. Um, the kings and queens of Castile and the kings and queens of Aragon, for certain reasons, will take me too long to go into, I'll take a half hour to explain that, gave to the Jewish communities an unbelievable amount of self-rule. That the Bezdins could do Chai uh, Misa. Uh, now, this, is, this itself raised famous questions. How can you do Chai Misa when there's no Sanhedrin? But they did it anyway. Basically, they did on Bezdin, Makan, Shalom, and Adin. You know, in other words, Harasha. That's the to cut short to the to the chase, and uh, in the rush and the rush, there are many cases about death penalty and torture and uh, uh, what do you call it maiming? You know, chopping off the nose of a girl, messing around with a guy, all kind of things that are non-Talmudic law, but were carried out by basins anyway. Right? This is the era that we're dealing with. Uh, I would go. In, I'm not. I'm not giving a, a talk today about the rush. So I'm not going to go into that. So here you have the Rush, who was there for 20 years, something like that, a little bit less, approximately. And uh, his family settled in Toledo. Now, I'll tell you again, they weren't poor, although, you know, they had stopped making money in Germany. You get what I'm saying? They stopped the money lending business. And I, I'm not his accountant. I don't know how much money he brought to Spain. But the money runs out. And that's what happened. So the Rush had a salary, a decent salary. His kids had to find something to do. Our hero, Yakim and Usher, was obviously a sit-and-learn type of guy. That's just who he was. And so he never, as far as we can tell, he never job. He sat and he learned. Now, 
How do you do that? The answer is, he had some kind of a stipend. I'm sure the father must have left a certain amount of money, a Karen Kayemis, uh, you know, from his estate, from his uh, bank account. I'm sure that in Toledo, there must have been, you know, some people willing to, to support somebody to some degree sitting and learning. But it's fairly Yadua. The historians all say, uh, you know, they don't know for sure. I want to, you know, a lot of times you see in the books, you don't know, but it seems from what we see that the uh, our hero had a poor life, meaning he wasn't a rich man at all. I would estimate, if you ask me, based on what I know about that time, I would estimate that a guy like this, in America's terms today, today, a guy like this probably had an annual income, I would suspect, of $40,000. Right? Now, if it's just two couple of two, whatever. If you have a family, 40000 ain't going nowhere, right? So it's tough. That's the kind of person that our hero was, Yaakov and Usher. And the father was real from, and he obviously didn't pull shtick to get his son money. And so here's somebody who was a lifelong learner. That's what he liked to do. And that's all he did. And he sat and he learned. And uh, as I said before, he was about 35 when his father left Germany and went with him. By the time he got to Spain and settled down, he was probably closer to 40. He died when he was like 74. So for about at least 30, 35 years of his life approximately, he sat and learned in Toledo. He had a family. You know, that's what he wanted to do. His father died in the late 1320s. That would mean he was, uh, let's see now, um, 30, in his late 50s, right? When his father died. So the last 20 years of his life, uh, he was on his own. You know, his father was gone. His brother took the job of dying. So in other words, he wasn't even interested in taking a job with the Kehillah. He mamish wanted to sit and learn. Like a guy, he said, I'm spending my life in Lakewood. Just, just learning, not looking to do anything else. Fine, okay with me. Now, obviously, if that's all the story was with him, there'd be nothing to talk about. Because there's nothing unusual. He didn't just sit and learn. He wrote. And his writings put his, made him famous. That's the point. His writings made him famous. The thing specifically that he wrote, of course, that really put him in the front ranks. So I know he achieved, if he was interested in fame, in the best sense of the word, not in a selfish sense of the word, but in the positive sense of the word, he, he, he uh, got a home run. Because he clearly was interested in writing a Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, as you and I would call today, which means that he realized, looking around, that in Spain, uh, this is Yudua, there was always a small elite of scholars, but there's a large number of Balabatim out there that are ignorant beyond belief. And uh, they ain't going to go and sit and learn. And remember, we're talking about the 13th century, 14th century. No art scroll, no, there wasn't even hardly Rashi for all I know. And it was all in, in manuscript form, hard to read, and chicken scratch writing. You know, it's not for, it is not for everybody. Don't tell me everybody's going to sit and learn like they say. They, it's not possible in the old days. Besides the fact you have to make a parnasa, all the rest of it. And Spain, especially Castile, was famous that, eh, let's put it this way, the Jews were into a lot of Averas. Gilarais, Vichadon, Vodazor was very common over there. Particularly Gilarais. And, uh, not because I'm going to tell you the truth. I mean, that literally, you think I'm being um, rhetorical. I, I, I know what I'm talking about. And uh, a lot of people just don't know what the din is. Now, there was no kids to So here we run into the interesting thing. So here's our hero, who was not an active rabbi. He was not an Avbezdin. He was not a Rosh Hashiva. He didn't give Shiurim. He wasn't a dynamic guy. He didn't write Shalos and Shubas. People did not turn to him. In English, he called a Garrett Scholar. But he lucked out because he must have had, you know, I would imagine, very strongly, a chug like an Eshtibel or something like that, of people he gave a, a daily class to or he learned with them or something like that. You know, that, there's no question in my mind that that's what happened. He had a certain number of, of scholars or Balabatim that he would give a shear to. And, over, and he did it for all of his life. That's all he did. He didn't do anything else. And so he got good at it. And this inspired him um, to start writing uh, halacha pamphlets, like you say today. Uh, 
you know, uh, there are a lot of people in Lakewood and Baltimore elsewhere in Israel to write these pamphlets. They want to do it. And they mean well. And once in a while, a guy does a good job. Just because somebody does it doesn't mean he's good. Somebody does a good job. Now, he lived in late from 1270 to 1340, 41, something like that. So, uh, 1343. So it's the late 1200s, early 1300s. At that time, the problem was to get a halacha book out there that's useful and practical for people. I've talked before, on other occasions, about the fact that once upon a time there existed a thing called the Gemara. There was no Rashi, no art scroll, no Steinsdorf, no nothing. How is anybody supposed to be able to get to it? At all. That need created an objective reality, or it created an objective need, for a Rashi to step forth. And eventually the Rashi did. That itself triggered a process in which a, a Tosa stepped forth. So these are organic intellectual literary developments. Now, that's in the area of just being able to read the Gemara, to understand it at some level or another. Now, leave the Gemara aside for a second. Talk to me about Halach Lamaisa. There are people who want to know what the din is. Matter of fact, there's a ton of people out there that say, listen, you know, uh, just tell me what the din is. I don't even know the longest behind it, because I don't understand it anyway. That was the Rambam step forward to try to fill that gap. And the Rambam wrote this famous book, the Mishnah Torah, with dumbbell instructions. Notice, without explaining too much why, if a milk like a thing falls a face like a spoon and a flesh like a pot, here's what you do. That's how the Rambam writes, apodictically, uh, with short introductions. That the Rambam is a brilliant work, but it didn't achieve what the Rambam wanted to be, which is the one-stop shop that everybody just opens the book and Paskins according to it. There are very good reasons for that. And the Rush himself was one of the main critics of the Rambam in terms of don't use the Rambam as a halacha book, just you open up and read from it. Because you have to know the reasoning behind it. And I've spoken about this on other occasions. I'm not going to do that today. Um, the Rush is famous for that. I mean, he's not the only one. And so the Rambam book, brilliant as it was, didn't achieve total status as, you know, just you, you open it up and you, and you follow it, okay? So it left the desire for a holy grail. How can somebody do it perfectly uh, to present the halachas in such a way that, it can, that, that everybody will like it or something like that? So the Rosh took a shot at it. He um, felt that uh, people in Spain, like in America, don't say brachas. You know, not really. You, know, you say a little here, a little there. A lot of people skip a lot of brachas. Ask the guy next to you what brach you make for lightning. You know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's such a world out there, if you're honest. Um, right? Let alone when you know what food to make a brach on. So, he says, they undertook to write a book about, you know, daily brachas, and that led him to start writing a booklet, a booklet on what became the first part of Orchayim. From the time you wake up in the morning and through the davening. And he, that means he wrote a chibur, you know, on a parchment, on a, on, on a manuscript, and he passed it around to the people in his chibur, I imagine, and they said, this is not bad, and maybe they offered him suggestions, like Rashi, you know, and maybe he rewrote it. And after a while, he got his style out there. Now, his style turned out to be a very interesting one. You present the din. It's written literarily very well. Um, as you know, a lot of times he throws in a nice agatha or in there, but not a lot. Or a statement in the Gemara. Um, quotes Sefer Hasidim, you know. And then he gets to the issues. And he was a pretty good organizer. And he invented what eventually came what we call the Shulchan Aruch system. He's the one who invented it. And uh, he also, and, and so basically he'll say like this, here's the din, here's what the Gemara says, and here's what the Rambam more or less renders it. So the truth of the matter is, from reading the Gemara and reading the Rambam, the way the Rambam treats the Gemara, you can probably understand pretty well what the Gemara means. Uh, I found that to be true when I was young. However, the Rambam wasn't the only guy in town. The Rambam was a contemporary of the Balitosis, but didn't know they existed. 
And so everything you find in Bali Tosfos, everything you find in Bali is, is absent from the Rambam. But not from the, you know, not from the tour. You know what I'm saying? Not, not from Yaakov and Usher. He himself is a grandson of Bali Tosfos. He knows totally what's going on. His father was the Rush. And the whole Rush has to include the Tosfos in there. Um, I might add, by the way, I skipped this, that one of the things Yaakov and Usher did was to write that thing, the Kitsipiske Rush on the back in the Gemara, you know, which is real cool. I use them. Um, I haven't used them in a while, but really excellent. You know what I'm talking about. There's a long piece in the rush. After it's all, now I'm older, it's easy for me to understand it. But when I was young, you read a whole piece in the rush, especially in some difficult thing. And at the end, you say, What the heck did he say? Like, I think I read it, but I don't know what he's saying exactly. And then you look in the back of the kids at Piscay Rush, and he gives you, in one or two lines, a summary of it. There's a whole little science of summaries in the back of the Gemara, if you know where to look. They're good cheater books. So if he wrote his father's stuff, that means he went through all shots that way. So now he took that kayak, you might say, and he said, here's the Gemara, here's the realm that says, and here's what other Rishonim say. It'll be Rashi, it'll be Tosus. Um, by his time, you have some famous hitters that were already just died, like the Ramban and, uh, you know, the Rajvan, people like that. And the result is, you have a discussion on a subject with an encyclopedia of important opinions and I've, me and a million other people always thought that's fantastic. That's the best thing since Swiss cheese. Uh, because it means that the, it comes a cheater book. She ain't come out. You see, a, you see a, a din. Let's say, for example, you're learning a Gemara. And it, like I said, you, did, you and went to Shear and you did what they told you to do. And then Mark McComas. And you went to that long run. Or Muki Yosef or Rush or whatever. And it's, you know, Shemitu Bessis. And you're confused. Because you're 22 years old, you know. Because you're 19 years old. Or for all I know, you might be 35 years old. You're confused. And it's not like you have, you know, some, now the Masif to tell you what, it, what it's really saying. That you say, oh, that's what it is. You don't tell anybody, but that's what it is. It's not like, you know, you heard a, a Gavaldiga, um Magachir of the Dafiomi who can touch up for you one or two words what they're, they're saying. You have to do it yourself. So, it might be confusing. No, you go to the tour, the Palatorum, and you'll see, he'll say, you know, this is where... This was Rashi's opinion. This was opinion. This is my father's opinion. Adoni of Rush, Alf of Rush, usually passing the Rush naturally, and um, but you don't have to, you know. And he, you have a wonderful digest of the opinions of the main Rishon up to his time. Now he lived in the 1300s, but those are the main guys you deal with in the Gemara. It's Rashi, Tosis, Rambam, and uh, you know what, what I would say early Eker Rishonim, Ramban, Rashi, you know people like that, right? Raw. I mean. Uh, uh, Rama, and so forth. And it's great. Uh, Rived, you know, it's it's great. This took off, and that started him on the business. Maybe I'm good at this. And he continued on till he finished what you and I call Orachayim. In other words, once he finished with the brachas and the dominating stuff, he said, you know, might as well do Shabbos. Not everybody knows Shabbos so well. That's an understatement, of course. And the Ramah done Shabbos. But again, it, the Ramah wasn't so user-friendly in the sense that it gives you all the menu of opinions and discusses it more in the context of the original Gemara, and uh, the tour will do that. So it's like a wonderful supplement to the Rambam, you might say, and in some respects it replaces the Rambam, in other respects it does not. And then he said, you know, once I did Shabbos, let's do the rest of the Yontif, and then he's finished with something called Orachim. Uh That's what happened, started little by little. It reminds you of the Orach HaShulchan, or maybe I should put it the other way around. It started that way. Well, that set him on a lifelong uh, uh, mission, because then he did Yerodeah. Uh Now, my point in all this is, he is the one who invented the system that became the system, because, of course, he divided everything into Archaim, Yerodeah, and Ebenezer, and Choshim Mishpat. He's the one who decided that at the beginning of Choshim Mishpat should be Echmei's Hilchas Vayonim, you know, and uh, the Rambam did it differently. He's the one who decided beginning of day should be uh, Shechita, and at the end of your day should be Avelis. So there's no inner logic that I can think of uh, behind all this, but it doesn't matter. The reason I say it doesn't matter is uh, his system got very popular. Uh, by the time he finished writing, uh, this book took off, you know, started flying off the shelves, as they say, because of its wonderful utility. Especially when you get the Chalcha Mishpat for goodness, or anything, anything at all. Um, and the people came after him. He died in the 1340s. So people came after him, especially as of Karan, the Ramon, and all that. 
they basically took the opinion it's not necessary to reinvent the wheel. Let us just use his system. Orchayim, Ebenezer, Yerodeyan, and Chosha Mishpat. And that became universal. Or just about universal. Now, I know you don't know what I'm talking about, but in the history of codification of Jewish law, different authors experimented in the 11, 12, 13, 1400s, 1500s with different systems of how to organize the Jewish law. Uh, some did it by days of the week, some did it uh, like the Haredim, you know, parts of the body, uh, some did it in other ways. There's different ways of doing it. The tour did his way. And once Yosef Cairo and the Ramon and the others followed it, so that became what is Arayomazeh. And the idea is like this. What do you do? Something better? Eh, you just make more confusion. Get used to the fact that Nadarim is going to be over here. You know what I mean? Just get used to the fact that Hulu's getting is going to be over here. And it is confusing for a young guy in Yeshiva. That is a fact. Because it's not organically logical. But you learn. You know? You get used to it. And eventually, the Shalos and Shubas got organized along those ways. So all the Shalos and Shubas now are always the Archaim section, the Yordea section, the Ebenezer section. So if I'm me, me, myself, and I, if I want to look at something about Geras, I'm going to look at a certain place in the middle of Yordea. You know, I'm just supposed to know that. If I don't know that, I have no business opening the book in the first place. Right? <laughs> you know, like that. If I want to know something, uh, I don't know, about, uh, you know, uh, Megillah, it should be at the end of Archaim. Right? I mean, you know, if I don't know that, I have no business messing with it. So it can be done. And meanwhile, the book itself was so popular because, I'm telling you my opinion, popular because people didn't have, in those days, whole libraries before the printing press existed. And a lot of places, Dolkarov had X number of manuscripts around, and he's supposed to be the Dayan and Paskin and all this kind of stuff. What a Dayan needs more than anything else, what a rabbi needs more than anything else, what a basin needs more than anything else, is options. I'm telling my opinion. Right? You can't simply say, here's the thing, this in this case, and this is what you have to do, like the Rambam writes that way. Here's the difference from the Gordon, that's how you apply it. Life is so complicated, it doesn't work that way. And you can't say, well, the heck with it. Eek of a din is a heart. Really? Are you going to mess somebody's life over? There are times when we say Eek of a din is a heart. There are cases where halacha can come out, and, you know, the couple has to get divorced. You know? There are times it comes out that this guy has to lose a house. It can happen. But it shouldn't, meaning it should be as, as rare as possible. We would try, when we can, to find the right halachic solution within the Torah to match each case. So in that case, I'm gonna need, I need options. I need options. So when I say options, it's good to know that Tosis holds this way, and the Ravid holds that way, and the Ramban holds the other way. Because then maybe if I'm the Rav in the year 1400 in this, in this country, and I have a terrible shot, I said, well, listen, I, because of the circumstance, I'm going to rely on the Shita of the Ravid. You can do that. Right? You can do that. And so they love the fact that he gave you a menu of opinions. The Rambam couldn't stand that. The Rambam says it's going to be so confusing. And the, to himself, in the Hakdamas that he writes, which, I, by the way, I recommend very strongly. I don't have the time, but take me another hour. I recommend very strongly that people read his Hakdamology, they're called, his Hakdam, especially the Chosha Mishpat. But to anything, he writes, for, he's a very good writer, and um, uh, he always has a little sermonette, very often, you know, like, the, and that he copies the Rambam, but he doesn't write in the Rambam way. He writes in his own way. <coughs> and all I can tell you is, I've always been sorry in my life that they never published a tour by itself. Because I think, I assume you know this, that when the tour came out, it was very popular. Um, he died in the 1340s. 150 years later, 180 years later, Joseph Caro, elsewhere, decided to write the base Joseph using the tour as a principal organization. Notice if Joseph Caro said, I want to write uh, base Joseph, meaning to give the students Mamish the Makor and the Gemara and the, and the basic uh, Gemara Rashi Tosis and that sort of thing on every Sugya and every Din. And the best book to use as a basis for organization is um, the tour. And so the Beis Yosef became written on the tour and that's why we see Beis Yosef printed with a lot of print around the tour. And since people had issues with Beis Yosef, 
So you wrote the Bach and the Sma and the, and the I mean the you know the Drisha Prisha and all that, and you end up with the page of the, the classic page of the tour, which is fine, but it's always seemed to me the result of this the tour gets buried. The tour simply becomes a daya in the discussions of the big guys after him with the Beis Yosef and the Bach and then the Shacharach and the Ramah and the Nosekalim and all the rest of it, and that's not what the tour was meant to be. It's supposed to stand alone by itself. And believe me, believe me, if you can do this, do this. If it, and it's a real shame. I wish somebody today would publish just one volume, just the tour with nothing else, and that's what you'd read on, on, on you're in Shul, that's you read on Shabbos to go to Hilchus uh, Shabbos. That's you read before Pesach, go to Hilchus Pesach. If you're interested in Hilchus, I don't know what, uh, you know, Shrita, uh, Nida, whatever, you know, Kedushin, whatever, you, whatever you're talking about. Just read the tour. It is such a wonderful thing by itself. And I don't know anybody who does that. In classic, uh, he achieved canonical status. So anybody who was a, a, a Rav in the old school, even today, you're supposed to spend your time going through tour based Yosef and then Shulchan That's the Nohalacha. That's the basics. And then you do the uh, the Chibustad or Nagayat. But uh, again, Tour based Yosef, and then the uh, and then you know, for example, all the guys are going for uh, you know smicha for the other day. And that's what you do, right? You got to know your tour, your base Yosef, and uh, then you got you know your shulchan aruch and the uh, basic notes of Kalim and all that, and uh, and then you go on. So, no, don't do. Uh, that's fine. I have no problem with that. Obviously, I had to do that too. Just do the tour, and you know, it would be a wonderful exercise, even for regular bal bus. Just do the Torah Chaim, the you know the first part of a davening, because he's so interesting on the way he writes about the davening, and you you the reader will be very interested to see these differences of opinion among the Rishonim. I'm not talking about the way we paskin. I know how to daven, you know how to daven. I know what to do on Shabbos, you know what to do on Shabbos, but it will educate you in a wonderful way, in my opinion, of the multitude of opinions out there, and these are sheets of basic Rishonim. These are not opinions Stalin and Veltrine. These are opinions of heavy hitters. And uh, I just think it would be interesting. I mean, you would not find it boring. You would find it very interesting. And so you don't have to be a rabbi for this. It would be very educative. Uh, in my show, uh, before the Quran, of course, like sometimes on Shabbos, before Yontav or something like that, I'll do with them just tour. Just a tour, you know. And because uh, it's very interesting, you know. Good for Balabatim. Whatever the yontav is. Uh, and it gives you, like I said before, all kind of basic machlokis with shonim, shitas with shonim, things like that. And a very, what I find a very useful, user-friendly way. So I'm still waiting for today. Now, in my world, I wish I had the kudos. You know, now we live in a time when the whole Shulchan Aruch is in one big volume. Have you seen that? It's like a brown cover. One big volume. The whole gun says Shulchan Aruch. Minukad. Oh, the whole business is great. And somebody did the same thing with the Rambam, which is already around Minnikov, but they have that also. But nobody does a tour. I don't know why. It's a Cinderella, you know? Nobody's a tour. I repeat, just a tour without the Beis without anything else. And you start going through Arachayim, and now we'll, uh, soon it's coming to Shabbat, The three weeks. It's very interesting to read the chapters, a few chapters, not the long stuff in the Beis and all that, just the chapters of what the tour says, uh, because later on, Yosef Karab, you know, uh, uh, abbreviated a lot of that stuff. Uh, you will become very educated uh, about different options or different opinions, let's put it that way, D- different sheets as we shown them. Uh, the job of a student of the Torah is to know what the opinions are out there. Uh, you want to know what Rashi said different than Tosis, I think. You want to know the difference between the Rambam and Rabbeinu Tom, I think. You want to know the difference if the Rush weighed in on something against, I don't know, Shemal Nugget, I think. <coughs> And there's nothing that I can think of that's more, you know, more friendly uh, than the tour. The Archa Shulchan reminds you of this, but it's not, it's not as good because Archa Shulchan, of course, written hundreds of years later, and he had to take into account a lot more stuff. The tour is written, you know, what, uh, 700 years ago, 600, 700 years ago, and uh, life was simpler then. There weren't many opinions out there. But wouldn't it be wonderful for you to go on some subject of, let's say, Hilchah Shabbos, let alone Hilchus, uh, you know, Gittin or whatever, and you actually are familiar with the basic uh, opinions. 
four or five opinions of Rishonim. I, you don't know the Achronim, all the rest of it. Who cares? I mean, you know, you'll do that too. But there's something you can read, as I said before, something you can read in Shul. Something you can read in Shul. Um, and uh, that's the wonderful thing about the tour. So he hit the jackpot and he wrote something that people, you know, uh, became very, very popular. And it remained popular for centuries. The only thing is, of course, it runs out of, how should I put it? As time goes on, and there are more shittas, so you don't look at the tour de Pascha anymore. But really, you kind of can. I don't mean you Pascha out of the tour. It's such a good tool, in my opinion, to provide you with the background, of, the basic background for an, for an issue. Of course, you build on that background. Like I said, the tour is not the end of the game. But it's a wonderful thing. And for a guy who's doing Dafyomi, or a guy who's doing, you know, Yeshiva, especially early years, it's really a wonderful um, check book. Meaning, you learned this up, now let's see how the tour plays in. And he's like, uh-oh, I didn't read the Ramban that way, you know. There's something, the Balamora versus the Muhammad. I said, oh, I didn't, I didn't understand that way. Oh, that's what he means. See, that's great. Isn't it? That's great. Now, the way the tours always used to be published when I was young is not user-friendly. Although that's the way it was in the history of Claudius. You had these big volumes. There wasn't a great print and all the rest of it. As you know, 20 years ago, is it? 30 years by now? The Machon Yushalayim put out now Star the tour, much nicer print and all the rest of it. Um, they ain't the kudos yet, but it's much, much better. And as a result, the tours are a lot more user-friendly. Uh, so I, if I sound like I'm a, a, a salesman, I'm not getting paid to, uh, you know, so I'm not, I'm not a salesman for the tour, but it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't bother me, <laughs> right? Because I, it's such a wonderful uh, document, a wonderful set. And uh, I repeat, you know, for everybody who's listening, I'll bet you it wouldn't be hard at all just to say, you know, I'm going to make a, a policy of uh, 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 10 minutes a day, 5 minutes a day, 5 minutes a day, just open up, let's see, Orchayim. You know, you have to be a Bucky and Hooks in the Dharm, yeah? Archim. And just read the tour. Skip all the base Yosef and all that stuff. Just read the tour. And say, oh, that's right, yeah, okay. I, yeah, I picked up some nice ideas today. That's just my opinion. Of course, life is funny. And the tour also wrote this stuff on the Chumash with the Gematrias. Because it's so short, you know, he wrote a long one and a short, a Pirsha, a Katzer and Pirsha Aruch. And the Pirsha tour, which you can get now, even when you could is uh, more or less a repeat of the Ramban and that sort of thing. But his gematria is really captured by his imagination. And when I was young, he used to have these chumash and chumashes with the Rashi and a little ball tournament because it didn't take up much room. As a result, everybody got into all the gematria stuff. And that's fine and that's great. And by the way, sometimes they're very profound. Uh, but you can't compare that to the tour, right? No, that's, that's, not, the, that's not the tour shulchanar. So if the day ever comes, perhaps somebody listening to this is in the publishing business. If a day ever comes that somebody says, you know, I'm going to publish a one volume, which you have the Gansa tour in it, uh, or four volumes, whatever, and um, uh, I think I think it would be extremely, extremely uh, helpful and interesting out there. And uh, it would be a vindication of the Mechaber because uh, this we put his life into. And really, it's an interesting case of a guy who I'll say it again. He was not a rov. That's not what he wished to be. He was not a post. He didn't do shalos and shuvas. Uh, he uh, didn't give a shear, as far as I know, in a, in a yeshiva. Not that we know of. Uh, but on the other hand, he had a big hashpah uh, and roshim as a result of his writings. Now, I'll just say one more thing. The tour and his generation, that was the Sons of the Rush, and their kids all live in the Toledo area, as in Castile. As a result, the, the Rosh and his children and grandchildren had a big hashpah on the Torah thinking of a large segment of the Sephardi Jews. And that, for you know, to, to cut short and not spend a lot of time on it, that's why you find certain Sephardi groups that don't eat kidneys. I mean, I'm simplifying, but you, I'm trying to do that to get a point across. Why don't you eat kidneys? Because the Rush brought certain Ashkenazi customs and certain Ashkenazi Hasidus way of looking at things. And this is picked up by the best of his Talmudim. And they communicated to their Talmudim. A lot of these people ended up in Morocco and places like that. And they would be among the frumest Sephardi element. You understand? Now, 
In Aragon, they had a different tradition. They don't need this. But I'm talking about from Castile. And a lot of the Jews from Castile, I believe, I believe, very complicated story because some of the people were exiled from certain parts of Castile well before 1492 when the early stage of Ferdinand and Isabel. I have to go into all that now. But um, a lot of them end up in the area around uh, uh, in Morocco. And that's one of the, one of the reasons, not the only reason, one of the reasons that made Morocco uh, a big Malcolm Torah. Right? Uh, among other things, Morocco was a big Malcolm Torah. And um, they included in the rabbinic elite, you know, long, these long traditions of, shall I call it, Asherian, Russian, uh, you know, uh, Hasidus. It's a, that's a whole story by itself. Uh, there are those, uh, should I do this? There are certain scholars, let's call them left-wingers, for better, or, or, without going into details. And they always complain, you know, Friday Jewry was going great, and they're all Maimonidean, very rational, and then the rush showed up and messed everything up because he brought all the Ashkenazi Mishigas um, into Spain. It's true to a degree that he brought in extra fromkites. That is true. And the Balaturim knows all part of this. They brought in a real sense of Chumr Bedin for themselves, not for others. And, uh, you know, uh, piety and all the rest of it. Uh, it's a very complicated question I'm raising. But for our purposes, uh, the result of what I'm saying today is People should should make a bigger use. This is this is what I'm uh, advocating for. People should make a bigger use of the tour. I repeat, just a tour without the basis of all the rest of it. Obviously, if somebody wants to use them for some more power to you. Like cover ground, you would really do very interesting. I think you, I I just think you would find it interesting if you say from now on every Shabbos or every Friday I'm gonna do one chapter or something like that. Just in the tour, nothing else. Just in the tour in Shabbos. To give you an example, you know. Or, as I said before, Tishabov is coming now. Uh, the style you'll get used to. And he is wonderful in bringing a nice medrash or a little sermonette. Not long, not long, on, uh, in a lot of places. And uh, what can I tell you? He was a good writer. So, uh, from Cologne to Toledo, that's the story of our hero today. Take care. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.